Hello and welcome to Fundamentals, a series from Fidelity International, where our in-house analysts reveal what their research is telling them about the businesses and industries you're investing in. This podcast is for investment professionals only. I'm Richard Edgar, and that's a clip from California, where some of the smartest companies in the world have been showing off their best inventions to Fidelity's investment team. Our analysts and portfolio managers have been on their annual pilgrimage to Silicon Valley. What's good, everybody? How are y'all doing? My name is Hypezilla. This is Riot Studios at Verizon, one of the largest wireless telecoms companies in the US, with big ambitions for the rollout of 5G mobile networks across the country. And I'm only the king of hype, the prince of fly. And as you can see, I like to keep it cool and I like to keep it sweet. Every move made by this actor, dressed head to toe in motion capture equipment, is being rendered in real time on the TV screens above our analysts. He's transformed into a colourful photorealistic streetwise ape called Hypezilla. And it's being done over 5G. The company says three to five seconds of animation like this usually take a week to make, costing a million dollars a minute. A whole animated feature film is anywhere from three to five years in the making. But here it's happening instantaneously. It's got our analysts thinking. What else could this disruptive technology do? Not just for film, but for connectivity, for the companies providing the service, and for the consumers using it. For the answers, listen on. With me in the studio are two of Fidelity's investment team who led that road trip on the West Coast. Sumat Wahi, a portfolio manager with a focus on technology, media and telecoms, and Jonathan Singh, a senior technology analyst. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hi. Now, this was a research trip. What, what does that mean? What do you get out of a, a research trip and who did you meet? So we do such sort of research trips quite regularly, once a year at least to the Silicon Valley, where we end up meeting with uh, CEOs and C-suite executives from at least 20 to 25 companies every every time we go there. At this trip, we ended up meeting with C-suite of Snapchat, Twitter, Intel, all the big names. all the big names you can think about, uh, if you will, but also with some of the with some of the startups which you may not have heard of and who haven't yet splashed onto the onto Wall Street yet. But we find them very interesting, both from understanding the current technologies, the but also what new disruptive technologies are going to come around. Johnny, what, what's the value of a trip like this to you? And there's a few things. I, I, the background is we, we started doing these trips many years ago, and. You know, like many other invest- investment funds, we often go to conferences and meet companies. And, and when you go to conferences, you have a 25-minute meeting. It's a rush. It's a mess. No one wants to talk. It's a zoo. <laughs> and we thought, look, there's got to be a better way to do this. So instead, we went directly to the companies and said, rather than meeting you in a hotel room in Las Vegas, why don't we come to your headquarters, sit down, have a conversation for an hour. We can bring... You know, Fidelity guys from, from London, from Singapore, from Sydney, from, from Hong Kong, across the world, and we can just have a better conversation. And the aim of these trips is to have a conversation with these companies, not an interrogation. And you, you get demonstrations as well, as we heard in the, in the introduction. What, what what's, was that like, that particular one? What was going on there? So that one, we, we actually went to Verizon down in LA, just a, a bit further down the West Coast. And it's kind of funny because you kind of think of Verizon as being kind of a, America's biggest phone company. 
you think telco, you think slow moving, established, but actually they've got this whole VR studio out in the middle of Hollywood, uh, which actually came when they acquired um, acquired Yahoo a few years ago. And they're actually doing some really cutting edge stuff because they're trying to think beyond being just a dumb pipe and like what's going to be down that pipe. How can we move upstream? How can we move up the value chain? And how can we, I guess, demonstrate the value of 5G technology you know, to our customers and, and get them to want to sign up? One other aspect of the Silicon Valley trip, which is also very useful, is that when we have this sort of global footprint of analysts coming in, one comment made by an Apple CEO is not just important to an Apple analyst like Johnny, but also to the entire supply chain analysts, which we have coming from Asia to understand you know, how that will impact their companies. And on to the point of meeting Verizon, the way we, uh, at least I, I, I look at investing in our fund, we have enablers, network builders, and then innovators uh, coming out of every technology. And we know that the semiconductor chips enabling 5G are already there, and network builders like Verizon are investing in 5G. But what we don't know are the use cases which will come out of 5G. And what Verizon is attempting to do by showing us these AR, VR examples is trying to show one of the technologies or one of the use cases which could come out of the advent of 5G. So you're getting exposure to ideas, you're getting exposure to each other's ideas, I Mm. suppose, as well as you feed off each other's discussions. In fact, um, I I know that that demonstration at Verizon seemed to spark a few more ideas within the team uh, and potential applications of, of 5G, and we can hear some of those now. When we toured the lab, we actually saw the way to produce content and consume content, how it would be different in a 5G era. You can do more personalized content and make the overall content cost get, gets lower. It really you know, helps me understand how the internet companies like under my coverage, like gaming companies, entertainment companies, will benefit from this 5G era because people is going to consume more content and they would have new use cases of how entertainment and games are delivered. So they gave us some really great demonstrations around their augmented reality and virtual reality uh, capabilities. So they they showed us uh, some headsets and and how they can use these uh, technologies in terms of advertising. So you could essentially get a live picture of a product in your house to see how the sofa looks or or how the table looks, which is very interesting for advertisers moving forward and really increases engagement by consumers when when they see adverts on their phone. We learned about how movie making is being democratized and you know how costs will come down quite dramatically and that has interesting applications across the technology chain whether you look at you know companies like snap you look at companies like facebook where we are today communicating communicating with cameras and you know doing these videos you know how things might change when you have more of an ar vr experience so as you said, Suman, lots of ideas and uh, amongst the team there. That was Tina Tian, who's based in Hong Kong, yeah. uh, Ranjeev Juti and uh, Amit Loder, a portfolio manager, um, both of them based here in London. Now, from advertising to gaming to social media, Suman, there's a lot to see. What else caught your eye and why? You cover a lot of the obvious ones which are coming out of this. One of the things which really stuck to me was the discussion I had on the sidelines with uh, Verizon Investor Relations, and it was follow-up to a meeting we had in May with the CEO. It goes back to sort of the promise of IoT or Internet of Things. Three years ago, five years ago, you would see futuristic articles uh, in the Daily Mail or What about NFT. toothbrushes talking yeah, to exactly. toasters? And, I'm, and I've never really yeah. been sure why they'd want to. And they never, well, you never <laughs> sure whether uh, why they want to or you know the whole Ocado ad of the fridge ordering your milk 
but never came around. And what was the reason for that? Well, the reason was because if you look at the previous telecom technologies, 3G and 4G, if all the internet connected or all the connected devices were to start pinging or getting in touch with the cell tower, it would just basically overload the networks. And as a result, those technologies were not you know, sort of strong enough or didn't have enough of capacity to be able to enable Internet of Things. In comparison, 5G can do that. And where there are real use cases of this, well, one example of that is Internet-connected uh, traffic lights, which are connected to your camera so that you're, they actually see what traffic is coming through and actually you know, sort of have the red lights and green lines, which they are more intelligent traffic, rather right. than you know, yeah. have it timed, if you will, as and, we see today. And, and just to explain about 5G, I mean, why is it so different? Is it simply it's faster, it can handle more data. We should have explained that perhaps a little bit earlier. Yeah, I mean, 5, 5G is uh, 10 times faster, 10 times cheaper, and can actually have 100 times more capacity to it. The combination of that is basically a cheaper and wider data bandwidth pipe. What I will also point out with this is that if you go back in time and you looked at when 4G was being brought about, None of us could have, you know, thought of the use cases which would have come out of that. I mean, Uber, Snapchat, Airbnb, Square, these 4G-enabled companies today, which we couldn't have thought about before. So, Johnny, what what should customers expect um, with 5G then? What are, what are the Snapchats and Ubers of tomorrow? With kind of 5G, the perception always is that it's bigger, faster, wider pipe. This is true. What people often miss is the idea of quality of service. So that could be in terms of, as Samantha said, you know, better connectivity when there's 100 traffic lights in the in the neighbourhood, and also the idea of latency. The idea that you can kind of ping back to the data centre and back to your phone like within one millisecond, and that's an order of magnitude that's 10 or 100 times faster than you got with 4G. And, and I think the idea is a lot of these use cases are not just fatter pipes but also lower latency and quality of service is what weaponizes things like VR and lets you do new things. Now, if you compare, say, VR or streaming video games with streaming Netflix... It's a virtual reality yeah, VR. Virtual, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, streaming Netflix doesn't actually require good latency or good quality of service. You just buffer it, it goes, and if you get an- another five-second buffer after five minutes, whatever. However, You're, you're a very it, tolerant, man. Yeah. However, if, you, if you're, say, watching live sports or if you're interacting with it so that you're playing a game in real time or engaging with a giant hyper gorilla in real time, you really care if you suddenly freeze for five seconds. And that quality of service and a lower latency is a key difference which enables 5G to do things which 4G could not do. What is your forecast of, of, of the things that we might be seeing that we haven't yet? The areas where we've done some research as a team and we've thought about are cloud gaming. You know, when you, uh, you pull a trigger on a gun, if you will, and want to see the reaction of that in a game, time you have for it to make look at real time is just 8 milliseconds. So you have to have a latency uh, speed which is lesser than that. And I think cloud gaming is one which, uh, which can really be enabled through 5G, if you will. Um, the other one uh, is AR, VR, the f- uh, uh, live TV is another aspect of it, and Internet of Things. These are the four areas which we actually think will impact, uh, uh, will get directly impacted by 5G. On a higher level, from a value perspective, or value creation perspective, today, if you think about 4G, 4G is enabled uh, essentially about $120 billion of U.S. economy today. In comparison, there are economists who, is, who believe that, uh, and this is their quote, not mine, that in 30 years, time, 5G will impact uh, the global economy by $1.2 trillion. Okay, that's 30 years time. I, I can't even forecast next week. So, um, And what I want to know 
know is how ready are these companies to launch the 5G networks, launch the services that will run on them? I mean, presumably, you're not going to have to wait for 30 years. No, indeed not. Uh, in fact, there is there's a race going on right now globally on adopting 5G. And there was a very interesting uh, Department of Defense article from the from US, which talked about the fact that having leadership in, uh, in telecom technology is almost essential to enable the uh, the next generation of connectivity-enabled technologies on top of it. And they show how 2G leadership in uh, in Europe, 3G leadership in Japan, and 4G leadership in U.S. was the advent of a number of uh, technologies and innovations which came from that. And right now, U.S. and China are in a race for actually adopting 5G. China is well ahead. Is it? Yes, it is definitely ahead because one of the leading uh, telecom equipment providers, Huawei, is in China and actually has a technological leadership over Ericsson and Nokia, the ones uh, sitting in Europe. And then Chinese telecom companies are marching ahead, opening up Spectrum and actually, uh, you know, sort of investing in 5G-based stations, rolling it out today. In comparison, in U.S., we have the Sprint Teamers merger being litigated against, which is essential to have three uh, players which can actually afford 5G. On the other hand, uh, there was some Spectrum uh, called C-band Spectrum, which was trying to be made available for 5G. And again, there have been political wrangling around who should sell it and who should be able to pay for it. So the reality is that with every democracy, there are so many voices around there that that to a certain extent, sometimes slows down the pace of innovation. Right, it's red tape that's that's holding yeah. it up in the US, um, but, uh, but but not in China. It's worth getting some historical perspective here. You know, I'm an analyst, but I also studied history at university. And it kind of when you look back at the history of kind of mobile communications, the fact is America won the internet. And that's partly because America won 4G. When I first started as an analyst nearly 20 years ago, the leading nations for mobile were in Europe and in Japan. iMode on NTD Docomo is the world's first kind of wireless internet service. Nokia, Ericsson, they were the world's leading smartphone manufacturers. In 3G, in the 2G, 3G era, Japan and Europe were dominant. What happened in 4G? The iPhone happened. Google happened. Facebook happened. American tech giants dominated first 4G hardware and technology, and secondly, the application services which ran on that. And you fast forward 10 years, and you know the reason why we went to Silicon Valley is because that is where the dominance is. Now, meanwhile, China is sitting there, building their economy, creating wealth, growing GDP per head, and saying that, look, we've seen this play out over the last 10 years. We cannot let that happen over the next 10 years. So having been a laggard in 4G, China was five years behind the US in deploying 4G, now they're determined to make sure that they are the leader in 5G. They have the first 5G networks out. They have the best 5G base stations. They have the most cutting-edge 5G handsets. And you can see the entire kind of China technology complex moving with one mind and one voice to pursue this goal. So does that mean that in the same way that Nokia and Ericsson, um, with due respect to them, uh, seem like ancient history now, what is going to happen to the names that you mentioned, Apple, Google and Facebook, that have blossomed um, in the 4G world? Who's next? Well, well, this is kind of the existential threat for the US companies. And you you can kind of see one or two different, a couple of different pathways here. One, I guess the software is that um, maybe that the Apples, the Googles, the Facebooks, they continue dominating in the US, they continue dominating Europe, but they are not in China. To the degree that the China internet market grows, 
they do not participate. To the degree that China internet companies grow outside in India or in Africa, where most of the GDP, you know, the wealth will be created over the next 50 years, you know, they do not participate. So the weak form is they carry on doing their thing, but they miss out on the incremental upside. The strong argument is that China becomes the leader and when you get to 5G or 6G, the Chinese standards and the Chinese companies dominate. And over time, these guys fade away, the American companies fade away in the same way that Nokia did. And so you can see there's kind of multiple pathways here. And the story is not yet set, but you can kind of see everyone lining up to pursue, the, the, pursue these battles over the next 10 years as 5G ramps. So but did you come back with a better idea of which way you think the US companies are going to be? Uh, I'm probably slightly more optimistic uh, on the U.S. companies, if you will. Early in this year, a conspiracy theorist would have said to you that the reason Huawei ban came about uh, and the China uh, trade war, which is now a tech war, came about was because of uh, U.S. nervousness around uh, the pace at which the Chinese technology and innovation is getting ahead of U.S., especially even the 5G adoption. And that's why putting a ban on semiconductor chips being shipped out to Huawei was a sort of stumbling block for the Chinese innovators. But obviously what that has done is that has got Chinese to double down on on the pace of innovation over there. But at the same time, I, I do think that necessity is the mother of all inventions. And when you think about... Uh, China inventing semiconductor chips today. At the same time, there are certain things in which Chinese companies have a better free hand, which the U.S. doesn't. For example, there is no stringent data regulation in China. There is stringent data regulation or user privacy regulation in Europe and U.S. The offside of that is these companies are being forced to innovate on artificial intelligence and machine learning with less data, which, you know, on one side you could argue could see these companies maybe still be head-to-head with the Chinese innovators. At the end of the day, while the wealth today is being created in India and China and soon in Africa too, today the most attractive place still for for an engineer to, to go is in the Silicon Valley. And they do and that they is attract not, the brightest and the exactly. best and um, in the in the world that they're, yeah. they're moving to to the to these companies. And they're not fading away in the next two, three decades. The lure of Silicon Valley is not going away. Of course, for a Chinese engineer researching in Beijing and Shanghai is as attractive. But for the rest of the world, Silicon Valley is still the place to go. So and if you look at India as an example or a competitive place. I I think the American companies have more success than the Chinese companies today over there. Um, And so I I wouldn't discount out the American players just yet. And especially on the semiconductor players, Johnny himself agrees that uh, I I don't think uh, the American semiconductor companies can be discounted out. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, I mean, six months ago, we did a, a similar trip but instead of going to Silicon Valley, we went to China. We were in Beijing, Shenzhen. We were kind of meeting all the companies. I think at the time, this was June. This is when the Huawei ban was at its, its full fury. I think there are a couple of things. One, on the semiconductor side, you know, China was clearly scrambling to make do. Um, you know, that we, we met with Huawei. They were, they were putting a brave face in it, but it was tough. So on the semiconductor side, you know, they were still lagging in the U.S. But then we met a bunch of private companies working in artificial intelligence. And there, the contrast was very stark. I mean, these guys were doing amazing things with facial recognition, amazing things with access to Chinese user data, which Indeed. Google or Facebook just cannot get. And there, the contrast was stark. We saw a company which does um, facial recognition cameras. And I had seen a similar demo from an American company, Motorola Solutions, six months earlier. Uh, and 
their solution, the, the Motorola solution was not good. Now, the guys admitted like, yeah, it kind of works two times out of five. Where the Chinese stuff, it was like, it can not only identify you, it could figure out what your age was. You were going through Beijing airport and like, you didn't need to have a boarding pass. It just picked up your face from your biometrics. And you could see that the contrast was stark that in the areas where you know, AI matters and where user data matters and user privacy is, is a constraint for the Americans, the Chinese were moving ahead. But th- these are very different environments, aren't they? What impact yeah. is that having on the companies? When you, you talk about it in terms of um, red tape, but uh, if you're going to be selling this technology in the US, in Europe, um, then you're going to have to operate within the bounds of, um, of the data uh, legislation. Indeed. Like, I mean, on this point, uh we met with a number of internet companies at this uh, tech trip, and they were talking about this new world for them where they have less user data. And to Johnny's point as well, Facebook, for example, is trying to find st- other statistical ways to be able to advertise, give a targeted advertising to to the user without actually having the same sort of data they had available. So they are trying to compete with, let's say, the Tencents and the Alibabas of the world with one hand tied behind their back. And they are still, at least today, head-to-head. So we will time will tell from that perspective. At the same time, what they're also trying to do is they ins- they're trying to inform the regulators in United States that let's not throw the baby with the bathwater. Let's ensure while we are, we are regulating in user privacy, we don't go so overzealous with that, that that leads to this sort of gap between in innovation between China and US to expand further and, and the American companies fall behind. How receptive the regulators are or the politicians are um, in the US or, or, or in Europe because I mean these big technology companies aren't exactly flavor of the month. No they are not but, but I think you know when you think about GDPR which was the European uh, law there's a wide consensus both in tech uh, companies as well as some of the politicians we have invited at our London offices and spoken to them and they all accept that that GDPR actually raised the barriers to entry and made these internet companies more powerful so they didn't deliver on what it had to deliver so I think there is an understanding but even if you're a if you're a policymaker you're a lawmaker you're a politician you don't really want to be saying that today because you know given the environment I think you get more votes if you say bring down big bad tech. But reality is this is not a six months into a political cycle game. This is more of a three, five year view. And I think I would give credit to the American policymakers that they will look through this and they would make decisions based on it, uh, on a combination of it. So it helps me understand you know, the AI companies that I cover in China. So there were some investor fear without the hardware support from the US, how could we develop or advance the technology there? So I guess you know, the, the one takeaway from the trip is, is really that in general for AI companies in China, data strength is quite structural. Apparently we're still lagging from the hardware perspective chipsets, but there's still ways to get around it. So I guess after the trip, the, the concern is less so than I initially had. When you think about how big tech works in China, there's a kind of fundamental philosophical approach to the model. And look, when we go to Silicon Valley, we meet the CEO of Twitter, we meet the management of Apple, we meet the guys of Facebook. You know, these guys are impressive companies, but th- these guys are ruthless capitalists. And the American system is designed to foster ruthless capitalism. This is how these companies grow. 
And there's a side about it where the deregulation has gone too far, but you know, that is the American dream. That is American capitalism. China is very different. China has created this hybrid of kind of capitalism and kind of state-sponsored capitalism. And, you know, the Chinese government is proud and happy to enable these companies, give them data, build up national champions, because, no, they understand that ultimately, you know, they will have a say in how these companies are run. This enables a few things. You know, you have the ability from China to coordinate these tech drives, to coordinate their push into semiconductors, to coordinate their push into 5G. And at the same time, you have the innovation which these Chinese companies allow. And you know, traditionally, you think state-sponsored capitalism, you think you know, that is inefficient, that is slow, that does not innovate. The genius of China over the last 10 years is to kind of harness kind of American ruthless capitalism and state-sponsored resource and, and planning and thinking and to create this hybrid model which means you have Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, kind of innovative companies which also benefit from the largesse of the Chinese state. And who will win, do you think, either of you, over the next, let's, let's say, five years? I don't think we can say one or the other that one would be a clear winner because if you, I mean, as someone from an Indian origin, in India, uh, the Chinese companies, because of that very state control image, are still seen suspiciously. And the American companies are not. I mean, companies like Apple have actually stood up against the U.S. government, which actually, from a growth perspective, uh, in in some of the other geographies in the world, is seen as a positive. It's not a don't take. It's not a broad approach. There are certain industries, such as AI, such as data-driven industries, where China is ahead, and China will arguably accelerate. There are other industries, such as semiconductors, where legacy no knowledge, legacy intellectual property matters where China is still fighting with one hand tied behind its back, and maybe they won't win. So you need to kind of dig into the, the different sectors. And maybe it's not a winner-takes-all. And maybe you actually end up having, you know, as I said earlier, kind of a, an American ecosystem, an American sphere where America wins, and a separate kind of Chinese ecosystem, a Chinese sphere where China wins, where you maybe face a new technology cold war, you know, the, the aspect of deglobalization, which means that in five years' time or in 10 years' time, you, know, you have different chips, different operating systems, different 6G standards, and both win in their spheres, but both are the poorer because you don't have the global reach. That's a fascinating thought to end on. Thank you, Johnny. But actually, before we end, to bring you both back to this particular trip um, to, to California, mm-hmm. what's the overriding thought or um, insight that you've brought back with you? What's the, the, the thing that struck you most, uh, perhaps on the, on the flight back to, uh, to the UK? I think we've discussed privacy and regulation a lot, so I won't go into that again. But um, when I look at 5G, the supply chain is ready, the network, i.e. the enablers are ready, the network builders are ready. It's now it's about understanding what use cases will win and how we monetize them. Telco companies have made an art out of destroying value historically. And with every telecom technology, there have been dump pipes on which other companies like Google, Facebook have monetized the data, if you will. Uh, This is the first time the combination of 5G and the ripping out of net neutrality in the United States allows the telco companies to actually finally monetize on their networks. That means that when you think about IoT or you think about cloud gaming, these companies may actually be able to charge the likes of Google 
an income out of offering that service on the and, and you, you you raised even in a, at the dying seconds of this um, of this podcast you've raised net neutrality very briefly explain what that is and why it would allow the telecoms companies to uh, to, to charge different amounts Historically, net neutrality was the concept that a telco company cannot differentiate between what kind of data goes onto their networks and and charge differently, i.e. a phone call or a YouTube video. All the data was the same for a telco company, and as a result, they couldn't differentiate or monetize. The difference was if you're just sending a message or if you're watching a video, the other internet companies could monetize very differently on that. And the telco companies saw this as a very unfair rule, which uh, which meant that they spent all the time digging the roads, uh, putting the cell towers and connecting the world together, and then other companies would come and monetize on that. They but it's, been a change, it's a changed world now. It's a changed world now, at least in the United States. In Europe, though, net neutrality still exists. Okay. And Johnny, um, finally coming to you, what's your one thought as you came back from the uh, from the trip? I think my thought was actually not, not a takeaway, but just a reminder of how everything is connected. So in the Valley, we had a series of meetings with a bunch of companies, kind of Intel, Arista, um, Juniper, and each company said things about each other. And I was just reminded coming out of those, out of those meetings that I learned less about the company I met than about their peers or their competitors or their suppliers. And it was just that perspective, being able to connect the dots uh, and, you know, share that with my kind of Fidelity colleagues and, and you know, turn that into, into ideas and trades coming out of the trip that reminded me of the value of doing these trips and having these conversations with the companies and just getting under the skin of what makes Silicon Valley tick. And to that point, if you think about, uh, you know, on this trip, we had the China Internet Analyst, we had the India Media Analyst, we had the U.S. Telco Analyst, and you had the U.S. Hardware and Internet Analyst over there. We collectively, we were discussing, I mean, the, all these discussions we've been having until now, they're on the global theater. So these companies are competing, Alibaba and Amazon, in India. And the media analyst coming in from India tells us the situation on the ground and be able to understand and compare and contrast on a global level, not just on that particular company we met, if you will. A global joining of the dots. Indeed. Absolutely. Well, thank you both very much indeed for joining me. Sumat Wahi and Johnny Tseng here in the studio. And thanks to our other contributors, Ranjeev Juti, Tina Tian and Amit Loder. And thank you for listening. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark from the Fidelity Studios in London. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.